Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 93. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetsandPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Uh, how you been doing, Fooleman? Pretty good. Uh, I've had a kind of a pedestrian week, though. You've been grinding away at uh, solving the math problems of the universe. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that overstates my contribution to the universe, but I had a, a paper submission deadline. Well, technically, the deadline is Monday, but I... I I told my advisor, like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting this done Friday, and I, like, I'm not working uh, for any longer on it. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I think it's always a good idea to set deadlines in advance of deadlines so you have some buffer room. But anyways, that got submitted, and now I have a life again. Oh, that's good. And uh, the Leafs have been waiting for you in your absence. <laughs> this is one way to put it. I mean, they won two games this week. Yeah. So we have to give them that. I wouldn't say any of them was a delightfully great game. No, to I mean, be honest with you, it, it does. It does seem like it's been a while since we had one of those like six nothing stompings where we just get like seventy five percent of the expected goals and it's just drama free. You know, everyone gets a point. It, you know, we get some comedy with like Gauthier doing something funny, or Timoshov like actually mattering. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I that, miss those, you know. Yeah, exactly. Little, apparently, Timoshov had a good game yesterday, from what I heard. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to watch the the game I was celebrating, uh, a friend's birthday. Um, but yeah, apparently he was good. Yeah, you know. So from what I saw of the game last night, I have to admit, I think Timoshov gets tagged as being good when he has his name pronounced aloud, because <laughs> normally it's like you can literally go whole games and forget that Timoshov is playing. And last night I didn't, so I guess he gets that going for him. Um, you know, it's fine. I don't think Timoshov has done anything that has really made me think that he's more than like a 12-13 forward guy. But, you know, whatever. Uh, that's fine. You need those two. Yeah, especially from a fifth-round pick. Like That's an unequivocal success. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge gift. So, you know, the Leafs also like him enough that they've gone out of their way to keep him off waivers because they think he would be claimed. I guess that's an indication of something. Maybe he'll add value to somebody. And so good for them. But, yeah, so we had a game against Arizona on Tuesday. Uh, I wouldn't say it was anything to write home about. It was a bit controversial because there was a goal overturned in overtime for goalie interference by the Coyotes. I have no idea how goalie interference works. I don't think anyone does. It makes no sense. It is a surrealist painting on the backdrop of our game. But I'm glad it went for us this time. The goal got called back, and then Kasperi Kapanen turned around and scored his patented Kasperi Kapanen breakaway goal. And we won 3-2. And picked up the two points. It was delightful. Uh, the next game was a lot less delightful. We played the Dallas Stars. The Dallas Stars who used to be like super exciting and high-flying and productive on offense, have gone way in the other direction, and now they are stifling. They are an extremely defensive team, and they made the game pretty boring. So, that didn't go very well for us. You know, we're not a team that tends to adapt super well to those sorts of games. And lo and behold, we did not. Uh, Freddie Anderson did not have his best stuff. It was his first game back from a short-term injury. We'd like to hope that he'll sort of settle in. He'll play a little better. If he doesn't, we might have a goaltending controversy on our hands. I know that everyone's missed having those. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and Campbell started the other two games this week, and he was pretty good in both. Campbell has been playing extremely well since we got him. So, make of that what you will, which is nice. Um... Andreas Janssen got injured in the uh, the game on Thursday, and unfortunately, it sounds like it's going to be a long one. Yeah, like a couple months, right? So that's kind of yeah. the target. So that, that puts him, you know, two months from, you know, earlier this week. It's, it's still April 11th. That's playoff time. So he's gone the rest of the regular season. Yeah, it's, um, we're hearing at least eight weeks was the quote that we got from Mark Masters. At least eight weeks is like, I mean, that could be much more than eight weeks, obviously, and that would be, you know, the second round of the playoffs minimum is basically what we're looking at. So, yeah, that's very unfortunate. Andreas Janssen was not having maybe the best 
stretch lately. I thought he was quite good earlier in the year with uh, Matthews and Nylander during a stretch where a lot of the rest of the team didn't have a lot going. But, you know, we're going to miss him. He also, by being injured, makes himself a lot more less plausible as a trade candidate at the deadline. Mm-hmm. And he was being discussed as that. It also thins us out on the wings, which is where we would logically seek to trade from. And so that's something that we kind of have to account for in the event that we decide to make a deadline move. Which we might or might not, because we're... Probably going to extend Jake Muzzin, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. So, I mean, the um, Janssen injury means he can go on LTIR, which gives us more room to play with in terms of our LTIR pool. And so last week we said that, you know, the Leafs should have the money to essentially get whoever they want when you factor in, like, the LTIR salary and um, the outgoing salary that would happen in a trade. And maybe that's still partially... True, but one thing we didn't take into account, which has come into the fore this week, is the NHL's tagging room. And we won't really explain it here because it's delightfully nerdy, even for us. Um, and it's not going to affect us hugely, but the, the, the core of it is that there's a limit to the amount of salary you can absorb um, with regards not just to the current year salary cap, but with regards to next year's salary cap. And it has to do with, you know, all the salary on your roster, your expirings and stuff like that. And I guess the idea was that if the Leafs um if the Leafs made a made a trade, they would potentially be running afoul of of that. They have to be careful of it, or at least mindful of it. And I'm sure Brandon Pridham is. Um as far as I know, there's no place to track this stuff automatically. You have to do it kind of by hand from cap friendly. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head of like how close we were to tag it, like to running afoul of the tagging rules and how much that would impact our uh, trade, you know, our trade options. Um, my sense is actually like not that much um, from, you know, some people I've seen on Twitter, like Earl Schwartz, who's a kind of capologist um, who, who has a, you know, good sense of this stuff most of the time, suggested that the Leafs would have, you know, some room, especially when you factor in the outgoing salary. But regardless, it, it might not really matter because it doesn't seem incredibly likely, given the factors you just mentioned, that the Leafs are going to make a move for a defenseman, especially in light of what uh, Chris Johnson said during headlines last night, which is that the Leafs have essentially agreed to a contract with Jake Muzzin, but they're waiting for March 1st to sign it. And I imagine they're doing so because on March 1st, the tagging room uh, just increases. So the idea there is you have you maximize your tagging room pre-trade deadline, and if a, you know, if a move, a good opportunity shows up, you're not constrained by that, and then you can um, fit Muzzin in afterwards when you have even more tagging room. Right? That, that, yes. That's my understanding. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. The basic thrust of the tagging rule from my skimming of the CBA is to prevent you taking on more salary next year than you can conceivably afford while still being compliant this year. Because it's like, they don't want, the league does not want you to take on 15 million in excess of salary for the next season. And while you'll be compliant this season, let's say, then if it turns out next season you're unable to make the moves or you decline, the league has to unwind a bunch of transactions. Uh, The tagging room going up after March 1st suggests to me that they especially don't want to have to unwind deadline trades that have already happened for a playoff run that's already happened. That's my reading as to why it's there. The nature of it seems to be that because of the access to which we exceed the salary cap currently, we have a ton of guys on LTIR, there is a quirk in how it's calculated that seems to really cut back on our tagging room. Like it, We're treated as having much less salary room than you might intuitively expect that we do. All of the upshot of this is is that you probably have to trust Brandon Pridham to calculate this correctly because I have an interpretation of this that I think is correct, but I could be wrong because it's not quite explicitly CBA. The point is, if we're extending Jake Muzzin on March 1st to this four-year contract, we've basically said he's kind of our guy. I'm not saying it's impossible that we would acquire someone else, you know. Right, and I think the reason they're, they're waiting is to, 
it's not to just make it allowable. It's to give themselves more breathing room in case something comes up beforehand. Yeah, maybe. But the way that it's being discussed is as if it's a done deal. Oh, yeah. No, and and, and I I think this is... One thing we've seen about Dubas is that he keeps his options open. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think this is... I think the delaying is just... It's to keep his options open. But realistically, I think if we're re-signing Jake Muzzin, that's our move. Yes. It makes it harder... Not impossible, but harder to fill out the rest of the defense. And as, as you said with the, the Janssen injury, you know, who... We, we've said this ad nauseum. Who are the people that the Leafs can trade that can realistically get something in return? Who we want to trade? Well, it's Janssen, Kapanen, and Kerfoot. Well, now, you know, Kapanen and Kerfoot are both wingers right now on a team that actually doesn't have that much depth at left wing, certainly, mm-hmm. because of all the injuries we've had to both Janssen and Mikheyev. Yeah, and, you know, I, I have to say, by the way, uh, Keith has been playing Kerfoot pretty consistently at left wing lately, as opposed to playing him at third line center. Uh, he's been playing Jason Spezza there. He's been drawing other things. I can't say I love it. I would put Kerfoot back, but this is where we're at right now. And so, we are kind of thin now, paradoxically. You might still make this move with an eye to the long term, if you want to trade someone out from wing, but the Leafs are still on a playoff hunt, and they're still, they still have one eye on what's going to happen this season. So there are a lot of moving parts there. I wouldn't be surprised if the Muzzin thing is as much as gets done. Like we've made the Campbell trade, and if we make the Muzzin extension, I wouldn't be surprised if that's it. I think there might be like a minor move, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there's yeah. anything that moves the needle from here. Um, you know, in in light of kind of the other constraints that they might have to work around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, j- I just don't think anything's really in the cards um, when you look at what we'd have to give up and the options coming back the other way. And, you know, the, the Jake Muzzin re-signing means, you know, irrespective of the tagging room, even if we can make it work, and I'll assume that they can, because I don't think the situation is that dire on mm-hmm. that front, especially, as I said, with salary going back the other way. Um, you know, f- fitting everyone in for next year, assuming Jake Muzzin is signed, and, you know, mystery defenseman X is traded, is acquired via trade, and they will also have term, based on what Dubas has said. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. doesn't, the puzzle pieces don't fit. So, right. maybe we should discuss that uh, rumored Jake Muzzin deal. I don't know if the the AAV has been discussed. From what I heard from Johnston, I, and I didn't see the segment, so hopefully I'm not wrong on this. This is just stuff I picked up from Twitter and uh, Reddit and sub, and whatnot. But the term is, is four years. and The term is four years, says Johnston. Mm-hmm. Pierre Lebrun said, my sense of it is that a 5.5 million AAV would be fair for both sides. I don't know if LeBron is just stating his private opinion. The tone of it sort of sounded to me in the tweet. So I'm reading tone in the tweet, bit of a dangerous game. But it sounded to me like he was saying, this is about what it's going to be. Um, four years of five and a half, give or take. They do sound like they're still massaging some of the numbers, but it sounds like they're pretty much done. Like they have a deal that's more or less on the table. Yeah. So... I, I would say for working purposes, while we try and envision this in our minds in the next couple of weeks, I'd go with five and a half. How do you feel about that? Mixed feelings! Yeah. Jake Muzzin is the only defenseman we have who seems to me like he can play defense most of the time. Yeah. I like him a lot. He's a great all-around player. He, he brings a lot of elements that are kind of lacking, frankly in our lineup and even if you don't think that those elements are as important as some do you know his physicality his grit his defensive conscience i mean we all value that last thing but in general you know i think he's very worth having there are a couple problems one is that he shoots left and i'll let you run with that one because you elucidated it really well to me and one is that he's 30 and he's going to be 31 by the time this deal starts this is a bit risky. You know, as far as I can tell, since he became general manager, Kyle Dubas has not given multiple years to any player who was over 30 at the time. Like any of them. Now, John Tavares will have several years on his deal that continue into his 30s. But this one starts when the guy is already 
coming up on his 31st birthday. It's actually next week. So there's a lot of downside risk on this contract. A lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, Muzzin has already declined, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not me taking a shot at him as a player because I think he's still very clearly a top-four defenseman. But in his mm-hmm. prime, he was a top-pairing defenseman, albeit one yeah. who probably didn't get the credit he deserved because of uh, his game where he, he doesn't and never has really been an offensive you know point scorer. But he was a an elite defensive defenseman, a, a true elite defensive defenseman. Right, mm-hmm. the, not not the Roman Polak defensive defenseman, <laughs> and he has you know regressed to being a very good defensive defenseman, and it's fair to say that he's going to regress going forward, right? And the um, it, it's very clear, and I bet Dubis agrees with this. It's very clear that Jake Muzzin will not be worth five and a half million when he's thirty six. I think I'm I'm quite confident making that claim. Mm-hmm. Because he's probably worth, like, just for one year, you know, not that far north of that now, right? So, And this gets into the question of, you know, windows and gaps and, you know, how willing are you to sign a contract that will help you in years one and two and hurt you in years three and four, right? Yes. And the an- I don't think there's an easy answer to that. And it also, it also gets into the question of what's the alternative, right? So when this contract comes out, you're going to see a lot of people on Stats Twitter say that's not a good contract. And I think in a vacuum, they are correct in that the total wins that Muzzin provides over the contract is probably not worth what he is going to be paid over the contract. Mm-hmm. But... Does that mean the contract itself is is just silly? And, you know, you can look at this in the lens through what Washington has done with a lot of their guys. TJ Oshie's contract probably won't be great at its back end, but he's amazing now. And Washington's trying to win now. They're saying, fuck it, we have Ovi and Backstrom. We're going to go for it as many times as we can. And if there's hell to pay afterwards, there's hell to pay afterwards. And I think that's yeah. a reasonable decision for Washington to make. Now, it's the same sort of idea here, right? We think we want to be contenders next year. We want to be contenders this year. Right, even mm-hmm. if it, the season hasn't worked out the way we we probably envisioned it, um, so when you if you if you want to be contenders, you're looking at next year's roster and saying who are our good defensemen, and it's not an incredibly long list. And it's also a list that is almost exclusively left-sided defensemen, and I'll touch on that in a little bit. But the idea is, you know what, this contract isn't going to look good on the back end, but we need to be good next year and this is the our best bet to be good next year and the year after and to some extent um i think some people won't like it because you want to have an idea of like a perpetual window where you're always just going to be like good you're right? good to a good to great team and part of being part of being a team that can do that means you have to have very few contracts that are going to age poorly um mm-hmm. you know very few contracts to guys in their mid early to mid-30s for big money uh, and, and and term. And the Leafs already have one in John Tavares. With Tavares, that's the cost of doing business, right? You sign that 10 times out of 10 because you get John Tavares and you get a few years of prime John Tavares, a few years of post-prime John Tavares, who is still probably a first-line setter, and a mm-hmm. few years of, yeah, John Tavares is in the twilight of his career. Yeah. So it's more understandable in that case. Jake Muzzin is not John Tavares, right? He is had a lower peak he's already fallen off more he's older and there's potentially more reason more you know more floor to fall through right it's it's possible by the end of next year he's not playable right things happen to physical defensive defensemen at as they turn you know 32 33 especially ones who are never renowned for their skating yeah and are certainly not going to get any faster in their 30s so yeah, you know, there's a lot to accommodate there. I, it, it is worth noting the Leafs have tools to mitigate downside risk that come from being rich. One of them is you front load the contract, especially with signing bonuses. The Leafs have done that with every significant player they've signed lately. Uh, Matthews, Marner, Tavares. Um, and 
they'll do it again. If you construct that in a particular way, you can go in one of two directions on that. First of all, you give more money at the start than the end. That's just how it's done because you want less money to be payable at the time when the player was less good. If you leave signing bonuses in the last couple of years, on the one hand, you can make it so that on July 2nd, there's very little real money left to pay or there's less and you can deal those sorts of players to cash strap teams often. The Ottawa Senators have had a hunger for those types of deals. On the other hand, if you leave no signing bonuses in years three and four, if you can negotiate that, that makes the deal easier to buy out on your end because signing bonus money cannot be mitigated by buyout. So the Leafs have to balance those two options. And then there will probably be some sort of no trade clause on this contract, but I would expect that it's going to decay towards the back end of that deal. So it might be a full no move or no trade in the first couple of years. Maybe it would expire in advance of the Seattle expansion draft. Maybe not. But that would be probably natural if there was a widening list so that he could be traded more broadly towards the end of the contract. The other thing is LTIR. And I'm hesitant to count on this and treat it as a guaranteed sort of thing that the player can just be LTIR'd in his 30s. But I am increasingly of the opinion that the league is right now not interested in cracking down on this as much as it makes some executives kind of wince. We've seen too many players get long-term injured at the convenient time. And I'm not saying that they didn't have injuries because, you know, it's very reasonable to say a guy in his 30s would be better off not playing NHL hockey again for his health in the long term. That's almost unequivocally true. And you can say that his abilities are decayed by his injuries, which is also probably true. And you can say, in our opinion, he's too injured to be able to play. You know, if he's just injured and also no longer very good, it's very hard to draw a distinction between that and too injured to play because they're sort of similar. And so there is a possibility that this contract ends on LTIR. And the Leafs may have accepted that as kind of an escape hatch. And they're saying we get hopefully two good years, maybe a third year that's passable, and then a fourth year where maybe Jake Buzzin takes a nice vacation. I'm not saying that that's guaranteed to happen, but I'm saying that when the Leafs plan for term contracts like this, and they're certainly aware of aging curves. I think that's very clear. So they probably have in mind what their options are to mitigate that eventual downside. Yeah, and I guess what, when it comes to like kind of wrapping up my thoughts on this deal, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I come down on it. Like I don't like it intuitively, right? I just mm-hmm. think, you know, spending money and term on a non-elite player as they head into their 30s doesn't have a great track record, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it gets made fun of now, um, but Milan Lucic was an amazing player in his prime, Mm -hmm. and he fell off dramatically, and his contract is a joke. Yes. Right? Uh, One of the worst, maybe the worst in the NHL, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And... There, that downside risk, as we said, exists. Like there, there, it's possible this contract just looks bad next year, right? Muzzin mm-hmm. is not a spring chicken. He has been injured before. He's had back injuries, which always kind of worry people. He, according to James Murdoch, walks with two knee braces just regularly, which is not mm-hmm. something you, you, you love to see of a guy you're <laughs> committing to for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there is significant downside risk. And... He is not going to be worth the contract over the course of those seasons, you know, over the course of those four years. It's a question of can we get enough good out of, good seasons out of him to make it worth it? And can we mitigate the risk on the back end, right? Or remove it entirely by saying, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll trade this to some cash poor team in 2022. Or, you know, we'll hope Seattle takes him. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the fundamental question. Now, is Muzzin going to be good next year? He'll probably be all right. Like he's, I think he's he's a second pair guy right now. Yeah. Um. 
so uh, he's as I said, he's already declined. It's possible he takes a step back and maybe he's only a you know fringe second pair guy next year. At which point, like even paying five point five mil is not amazing. Um, at the same time, I, I see I see why the Leafs do this. Like who who are the defensemen you're confident in on the Leafs roster next year, especially in their own zone, especially defensively. Mm-hmm. Now the one thing that I guess this is one thing I don't get about this deal. It feels like we're committing too much to our left-sided defenseman. Yeah. Because you have Riley and Muzzin, who are both going to be on long-term deals. Riley, I think, will have two more years after this one. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's two or three. It's two. Uh, it's two? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you have Sandine. And I'm generally a person who is, you know, you never bet on the fact that your prospects can do something until they show you they do something. Right. The exception are elite prospects. Right, like the Matthews, Marners, Nylanders of the world. Um, and Sandin is not in that territory of elite prospects, but he's done enough to make me think he is part of our future, right? And mm-hmm. that's part of the upside you have if you're the Leafs front office is, hey, we might be able to capture three, uh, an extra two to three years, more depending on how his RFA contract shakes out, but we may be able to capture an extra two years of a top four defenseman who's making 900K. And that's going to make up for a lot of, you know, potential inefficiencies that we have to, you know, that we have to pay just because that's the cost of doing business when you start paying UFAs, right? Like, John Tavares might not be worth $11 million next year, but if he's worth, you know, nine and a half and Sandin is worth five and a half million, well, we've come out ahead on that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've talked about the logic there. You don't want to combine contracts to sort of net out their value. Uh, in evaluating them, but at the same time, there's no prize for the best managed salary cap. You don't get an award for winning cost per point, as Eugene Melnick liked to say. You have to build the best overall team that can contend, and that's the logic by which you can defend the Jake Lesnick extension. Yeah, and and you know it doesn't make contract A better that that you have contract B, which is a you know a, a steal, but it makes mm-hmm. your overall team more efficient, and it means you are insulated from contract A. Mm-hmm. Right, so in in evaluating the context of the team, it absolutely matters, right? Like Boston has had that um, has had that David Backus contract for a while, but they've been paying David Pasternak nothing relative to what he's worth. So their their overall cap is managed brilliantly, right? Because that more than like that more than offsets for it doesn't make the Backus contract itself any better, but it means the team is still in fine shape. So if you're p- paying Riley, you're paying Muzzin, is Sandin just going to be your your Third pair left defenseman because that feels like a waste. You can get there. Mm-hmm. Tra- just you have Travis Dermott for that. I mean, if, if Sandin's going to be permanently blocked there, or not permanently, but blocked for the next two to three years there, like it, it seems almost not worth it, right? Like, why do you have this amazing prospect if you're not going to let him actually capture surplus value for you? Right. You're not. And this isn't a situation of, oh, you have to use, you know, you're not trying to optimize for Sandine's usage as opposed to the teams, but the most, the best case scenario for the team is Rasmus Sandine is Kale McCarr, essentially, and is a top pairing defenseman immediately. That's probably not the case, but, you know, is Sandine a top four defenseman next year? Possibly. Right? And if he is, you, you are suddenly, you're laughing. You're in a great, great spot. Mm-hmm. The problem is, who do you try, like? How do you bet on that, right? If you're the Leafs and you say, okay, we want to be good next year, we still have we still have John Tavares while he's resembling, you know, the John Tavares who we pay for, right? Are we comfortable going into a season with, you know, our top two left defensemen are Morgan Riley who sucks defensively and Rasmus Sandin who will be twenty? Yeah, that's a big gamble. And so, you know, I see the appeal of Muzzin. The thing is, is that somebody probably has to play right side. It's not going to be Muzzin from all of our experience. So is it going to be Sandine? Is it going to be Morgan Riley? I don't know. Or I, and, and if it's neither of them, it feels like you're not capturing all the possible value of Sandine. You're not making your team as effective as it could be. Yeah. Like, I, I have total confidence. Rasmus Sandine, one, you know, we're seeing him hold down a third-pairing left defense shot right this instant. But I suspect within two years, he'll be able to play second-pair left side at minimum. 
But I don't know how his game will translate to the other side as well. And if it doesn't, if the idea is that we're going to try something else, I don't know what the option is there. I do wonder if they'll least are thinking, okay, Muzzin and Hall are kind of our tough minutes pairing in the next couple of years, which has sort of worked. It's a bit of a, a weird pairing, I have to admit. <laughs> you have Justin Hall, who is like the smooth, but like, sometimes a bit over-aggressive offensive defenseman. And you have Jake Muzzin, who's like Mr. Reliable. And then, like, neither of them are what you would conventionally consider top pair at this point. And we're kind of thinking, okay, the fit of them together will be enough. And then you have your second pair. And it's like, who's going to bail out Morgan Riley or balance out Morgan Riley? Yeah, and I think the reality is it's hard to give defensemen on three different pairings all a large amount of minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing that and you're underusing certain guys, is it, like, a good idea? Like, are you getting as much value as you should? Because probably they aren't all equally good. Some of them should be getting more minutes. Some of them should be getting less. And so you are probably, to some extent, paying a bit of a toll for your desire to have balanced pairings because you don't trust any of them the most. You know, it's... uh. It's dicey. I have to admit, I'm. I can talk myself into the Jake Muzzin extension very easily, and I kind of want to believe in it. But I don't love it. I like it less and less the more I think about it. And this is kind of ironic because I liked it a fair bit when I first heard about it and we started talking about it. But. I am troubled by it. I am troubled by the fit thing, by the potential for blocking, by all of those issues. And I can't help noticing, you know, Jake Muzzin is, by all accounts, a terrific guy. He's a guy that Kyle Dubas knows from way back. Uh, he's kind of a leader in the locker room. They love what he brings. I don't know if maybe that's playing a notable role in our decision to extend him. You know, he's a bit of a team dad figure, and much as I love team dad figures, I'm not forgetting that we had to pay a first-round pick to get rid of one over the summer. So, yeah. I think the the argument for it... it we talked... We are talking off-air about this, and this is kind of the analog I, I said I was going to make, so I'll make it now. We talked mm -hmm. a lot about the Mitch Marner deal and said, you know, kind of unequivocally, yeah, that's a bad deal. And it's not yep. a bad deal because Mitch Marner isn't worth that money. You know, in fact, if you look at Dom Lachishan's models, um, Marner projects to be worth that money over the course of that deal. And what that means specifically is that the Leafs could probably not spend um, the money they're paying to Mitch Marner in the UFA market and obtain a similar amount of wins for the same amount of money, right? But why we considered it a bad contract, or at least a suboptimal contract, is because of the alternatives, right? And how teams typically operate and what what options are typically available to teams in that position. And the option that is typically available to teams in that position is you pay that guy a lot less because he's an RFA. Mm -hmm. So if we can say that there is a contract where the player is probably worth the money in a vacuum, that is still not an, an optimal deal because of the situation around it. I think the other way works as well. You can pay a player more than he is probably worth, but because of the situation you are in, it's possible that that is a reasonable choice and maybe your best alternative. That doesn't mean it's a great contract, but you have to evaluate decisions in the context of what is the alternative. Mm -hmm. The alternative here, I guess there, there's there's two ways you can go about it. You can say, fuck it, we're trusting Sandine. And you go into next year with Morgan Riley as your top pair left defenseman and Rasmus Sandine as your second pair left defenseman. And you cobble together you, you hope Sandin can handle, you know, quote-unquote shutdown minutes, or, you, you you know, someone has to play against good players. You hope that maybe you can do it by committee. You hope something happens there, right? Mm -hmm. That's option one. Option two is you sign someone else. Well, that sounds great, and that's what people, people would be saying. It's like, oh, you know, why are you signing Jake Muzzin to the deal? Well, have you seen the rest of the free agent market? Yeah. The next best guy, well, the best guy is Alex Petrangelo, um, that contract's not going to be great either. And there's no guarantee that he would come here. Right? Which people seem to forget. 
especially when you're when you're shopping at the top of the market, you can't go to the unrestricted free agent store and say, yeah, um, you know, I'll take a second pair left defenseman and a, a, a second pair right defenseman, please. It's not a Home Depot. <laughs> There's a very limited amount of people, and those people, you know, it's not a one-way thing. Those people have to come want to play for you, and some players don't want to play in Canada. Some players don't want to play in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we're not Winnipeg. We're not that level of unattractive, but, like, we're not universally attractive. So, yeah, it's, yeah. that factors in. The next option is, okay, well, we, you trade for someone younger who can step into that role. Well, that would potentially be great. As we've often said, win a trade is not really an, an actionable, you know, core plan. I'd love it if Dubas mm-hmm. did. But he probably can't bank on, yeah, you know, maybe I can just, like, fucking rip off Bill Guerin. I mean, maybe he could. <laughs> based on recent trades, he probably I would could. like to try. Yes, he could try. <laughs> but, yeah. But that's yeah. not really actionable. And then you're saying, okay, well, we have to subtract assets from somewhere. And that does have an effect on the team. The, the Leafs are not so deep that even Kasperi Kapton, who's had a bad year, he's one of the least better forwards. He's an above-average forward on this team. Yeah. So like... he hasn't played like it this year, but uh, yeah. So it's not an easy decision, and I can see why they made that, why they're going to make that decision of saying... Mm-hmm. We need a guy who we can trust, who gives us a player who we can make a, a quasi-shutdown pairing with and be good next year. Right. But it's it's a risk-averse move in a way. Because you're, you're paying... It is basically saying we don't think we can do better. Yes, you're, you're paying for the certainty, or the presumed certainty of, you know, Jake Muslin will probably be good the next couple years, or at least he'll, he'll probably be a second-pair defenseman the next couple years. And after mm-hmm. that, you know, who knows... And there is some element of moral hazard here because as much as we like Kyle Dubas, there, there's a non-zero chance he's not the GM of the Leafs by the end of this contract. Yeah. I I mean, if the team misses the playoffs this year and next, I would say the chances start getting pretty appreciable. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, the, I think the, the kind of... The hockey Twitter move is say, fuck it, let's go with Sandine. Like, he's shown enough in the AHL. Yep. His... He's shown enough in his time in the NHL uh, that maybe you can talk yourself into that. His time in the NHL, by the way, he, he's not, like, crushing those third-pairing minutes or anything when you adjust for usage and all that sort of stuff. Um, no, he's doing well. Yeah, he's doing, for he's doing he fine. Is. But yeah. I wouldn't say it's a guarantee he can play top four minutes next year, especially, like, difficult top four minutes next year. Um, so, yeah, it's easy for us to sit and say that. It's hard to do that if you're the GM and your ass is grass if the Leafs don't make the playoffs next year. Yeah, like, the, I mean, there there is a pressure on that. And I do think this has become, this has always been, but it's especially become a talking point as the Leafs have had an up-and-down year. And, you know, you get these smug people saying, you see, this is the mistake the Leafs made by signing John Tavares. They're all capped out at forward, and they need defensemen. Shut up. Like, I'm not in the mood for that kind of nonsense. One, if a superstar comes in the market, sign the superstar. Sorry. Just... You got to take a bite out of it. I will never regret signing John Tavares. It was the right move, 100%. Secondly, do you know who the big money contract for a defenseman was on that day, July 1st, 2019? I do not. Or sorry, July 1st, 2018. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you can't name any defenseman who's remotely in the same class as John Tavares. Like, there just isn't one who is like at all at his level of it, of impact. And half the time on July 1st, the defenseman, like last year it was Tyler Myers was the big guy. No thanks. You know? So I do get that argument that, you know, sometimes you have to just use the money you have. You have to accept that you're going to be capped out. And you have to go all in with it. And I don't think that it's an indefensible deal. If you're asking me, would I rather roll the dice on Rasmus Sandin? Probably. I think I would do it. But, you know. I, I understand that that has as much a chance of blowing up on us next year as the Muzzin thing does. And so there's not really an easy answer here, unfortunately. You know, running a team is hard, mm-hmm. as we've said before. Yeah. And it's not as easy as it looks from an armchair. And the thing is, like, if this was... If this contract was signed, if we signed Jake, if we signed 
29-year-old Jake Muslin to this deal. I think we're probably all for it. It's, it's you know, and, and yeah. that's the thing. It's fine margins, right? Um, this is, like, right on the board. Muslin is not going to be as good as he has been over the past four years, where he's been clearly a, a good second-pairing defenseman, a very good second-pairing defenseman, e- even borderline top-pairing guy. It's a question of how quickly is he going to decline. And, you know, we can look at aging curves and look at his style of play, and it, it you know, probably doesn't look great when you look at it like that, but can he be good enough next year and the year after that is what it really comes down to, and then hopefully you can move on from it if, if it gets worse, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. not a fun thing to think about when you're signing a contract. You know, when you're signing a contract, you don't want to be thinking of the escape plan, but yeah. that's the reality. And, and, you know, wins in different years are not necessarily worth the same, right? We talk about win yeah. cur- where the leaves yeah. are on the win curve. And yeah, a marginal win to them is is quite valuable, right? Because they are, and I think I'm comfortable saying that they're they're a good playoff team, right now. Notwithstanding the fact that we might not make the playoffs, but you know certainly under Keith, I, I, they've been a top ten team for sure, and you could argue uh, higher than that. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. even just under record, it's higher than that. But if you want to be, you know, if you want to give yourself the best chance, yeah, a few marginal wins here or there pushes you into elite team like unequivocally elite team and that is incredibly valuable right more so than going mm-hmm. from a 40 point team like detroit to like a 70 point team those wins are not incredibly valuable because all you do is lose draft position really right the valuable wins are going from bubble to playoff team and then like good playoff team to elite playoff team so it's all this to say it's understandable and worrisome at the same time like i i get why they made this transaction i i think i understand the rationale behind it i agree with parts of it that doesn't make it any less uncomfortable yeah it's uh it's a fraught decision it's not one of those nice easy comfortable decisions like you know the pierre engvall extension which is like so easy and nice and you know feels good and that's just the nature of the business at some point you are going to have to make tough calls so you know credit to cal dubas i certainly appreciate the position he's in and i'm not going to say that this is a unequivocal day one awful deal like i'm thinking of carl alsner who is currently in the ahl affiliate of the montreal canadians and he's got two years left at 4.6 on his contract after this one but like alsner sucked on day one of that contract at least we're not doing that you know jake muzzin is still currently a good defenseman Yep, it's downside risk. Yep. It's aging curve risk. E- even so, you know. even this year, like Muzzin has been an above average defenseman, right? And he's been coming back from injury. There's been a lot of turmoil with the team. Like, you know, he he's been an above average defenseman. He's been a, a solid second pairing guy, and especially like helping us, like stabilizing us when Riley has been gone. It, it's huge. But yeah, there there's absolutely downside risk. If it were me, yeah, I. It's easy to say this from afar. I I would trust Sandine. I'm I'm mm. high on Sandine. Right, and I think that's the that's the move where if you get that right, you have set yourself up so well for the future. If you get it wrong, you're probably unemployed. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm glad it's not my yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's yeah, it's a uh, it's a brutal one, and you know, this is without. I won't borrow uh, tomorrow's trouble podcast today, but. The only decision that I can think of that's going to be even tougher than this will be the goaltending decision that comes up in 18 months or so. Well, also, the Riley decision. So, the other question is, like, the, I think the blocking thing is, is, is significant. Like, do, what happens to Sandy? Like, someone has to move to the right side then, right? If someone doesn't move to the right side, then it's like, mm-hmm. I think this is a worse deal if someone doesn't move to the right side. I'm, I'm kind of assuming they have a, a plan to actually, like, make use of, hey, we have a possibly elite prospect. Mm-hmm. Right, because if I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts on the third pair. Yeah, but if you're if you're saying year, okay, but... he's he's gonna be on the third pair until you know, like he's you know twenty six, right, or some some shit like that. Like <laughs> it's not won't be that long, but you know, yeah, yeah. And it just depends on what happens with Riley in in two years. But but even then, if you're saying yeah, you know, he's gonna be on the third pair next year, and then the second pair of the year after that. Well, which one, which one of Muzzin and Riley are you demoting? If, if, you're, if you're thinking, oh, I'm not even going to get two years of Jake Muzzin playing and succeeding in second-pairing role, in second-pairing, you know, minutes, then I'm, like, less happy about the deal because I think, you know, it's made with the idea of, okay, you know, hopefully the next two years he's still a quality top-four defenseman. 
Mm-hmm. And e- even that is like not yeah, it's I, not clear, right? He's been a top four defenseman this year. If we're going on averages, he'll be a little bit worse next year and a little bit worse the year after that. The reality is players age differently. He could, you know, be fine next year and then drop off a cliff the year after. He could be fine the next two years and then drop off slightly and then drop off a cliff. Like there's so many ways to go about it. All you can do is kind of evaluate what the likelihoods are. And I think even that's very difficult to do. Aging curves are very hard. Yeah. I mean, someone, when I talked about this on Twitter, someone's like, well, you know, look at Jay Weber or Mark Giordano. And I was like, well, both of those guys are in another class above Muzzin. Yeah. But both of them have aged quite well into their mid-30s and are only really showing signs of decline now at all. So, you know, you can hope for the best. There is a scenario where Jake Muzzin is still remarkably good in year three of this deal, for sure. Year four seems like <laughs> that's a bit of a home run shot, but you never know. So, yeah, it, it looks like we're committed to it. It looks like this is the decision we're making. It does imply a lot of faith in this group. It does suggest that Kyle Dubas thinks that once he gets everything straightened out, hopefully gets a little healthier... He has a full season with his coach. It suggests that he thinks that these guys are going to be enough. That he doesn't actually have to make an enormous acquisition to make this team a genuine contender. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I hope he's right. There are times when I am convinced of it. There are times like last night where maybe they make it a little less easy to be convinced of. We actually did not get to the third game of the week because we... We got cut up in the Jake Muzzin thing, but they played the Ottawa Senators last night. They're a, a much better team than the Ottawa Senators. And, you know, the Sens have four ex-Leafs and the ex-Leaf assistant coach is now their head coach. I'm sure they played this one hard. They usually seem to. We probably should have made it look easier to beat the Sens than we did. It's one game. It is what it is. We got the win. But, like, we started pretty flat, and that was kind of embarrassing. From the numbers. Aside from a, a quick early goal. From the numbers, the Taveras line was, like, the one that really just did the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a one-off. You get kind of accepted. But, you know, we would love a, a real feel-good win, as we were saying, at some point soon. And, yeah. I mean, we relied on Jack Campbell more than I wish we would have had to. It was encouraging how well he played. Jack Campbell has been really good in four starts for us. And that's terrific. I hope he continues to be great. But, yeah. I mean, you should probably have an easier time with the Sens, who are, after all, a bad hockey team. Yes. Anyway. Uh, This may all be somewhat... I won't say it's all out of date. A lot of it will hold up. But we are playing the Sabres tonight. And so the feelings that you have as you listen to this podcast may be somewhat altered depending on how that game goes. <laughs> Hopefully for the better because we've crushed the Sabres. We, we should have just recorded like... Because we've somehow lost them. We should have just recorded like two segments. One where like we beat the Sabres convincingly and one where, you know, we, we, we lose. <laughs> and, you know, just after the game, I'll, I'll send out that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, the w- Leafs have won or lost against the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, no, and just like very Freddie badly Anderson dubbed. Was good or bad? It's like very badly dubbed. So, like, <laughs> you know, the Leafs won on the strength of an Austin Matthews goal. Austin Matthews scored an amazing wrist shot. It was, you know, his shot is so amazing. Like it's just horribly dubbed and shit like that. Oh man, we should. I bet we could pull it off. No one would. Yeah. <laughs> no quality uh, yeah, anyway, difference. Obviously. <laughs> It's already pretty much like this. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it would be nice. Buffalo is pretty much done. They're done. Like, they're 10 points back of us with, with one game in hand. It's like, they're, they're in that stage where it's like, and I remember this all too well, where it's like, yeah, we could still make it if we win, you know, 17 of our next 20 games or something like that. It's like, yeah, maybe. But by and large, no. So we could probably snuff them out pretty well by winning tonight. Hockey Viz has them at 2%. Uh, we are now... Yeah, that feels about right. They also have Montreal at 2%, which and is lovely. So, oh, yeah, just delicious. Uh, Montreal had a whole thing last night. They got really mad at the refs. That was funny, eh? Montreal getting like, indignant uh, at referees? I know, right? Who could have foreseen this? But, yeah, so apparently 
uh, Brennan Gallagher, who is, you know, just a lovable guy, went to the referees and, like, complained rather energetically. And the ref just eventually told Gallagher to go fuck himself. And, you know, I saw a lot of Montreal fans getting, you know, pretty upset on social media. They're saying, like, the ref was clearly biased against us. And I'm like, but have you considered that maybe Brendan Gallagher should just go fuck himself? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he should. And so, <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the Habs at time of recording are eight points back of us, but we have two games in hand on them. That's a big lift. You know, I, I think realistically the Habs have to sell Ilya Kovalchuk now. He's had a, a remarkable resurgence in the past month to looking somewhat more like the legend that he was once and less like the shell that he was in Los Angeles. They could probably get a pretty decent return for him as rentals go. But it would also kind of signal that they're giving up on the season. And while it seems mathematically that they should, that's not always an easy thing for a general manager to do. So that'll be interesting. Yep. Anyway, that was just a little aside about some teams that were ahead of us. Uh, we should also <laughs> talk about the teams that were behind because it's going to mm. fucking happen again. <laughs> Tampa Bay. Fuck Tampa Bay, man. Fuck Tampa Bay. They're on a 10-game win streak. They're one point behind Boston. They're probably a slightly better team. So they'll they'll probably go ahead of Boston. We're going to face Boston again. It's, we're going to not have home advantage again. And I know this is stupid because I just said Boston's a you know, Tampa Bay's a better team than Boston. So surely I should want to play Boston as opposed to Tampa Bay. No, I'm sick of fucking playing Boston. It's It's like... I'd rather play literally anyone else at this point just for variety. Yeah, it's it's so and you know? also it's just super super annoying to always have to deal with the same things with Boston. Right? Oh Every, yeah. I think there's nothing there's nothing new to analyze which how are we going to stop the top line? Can the Leafs depth beat the Boston depth? Is how many interference penalties will Zdeno Chara get away with? Above or below 4000? <laughs> Above, take the over. Right. But you know what? I think we should actually, if we do have to preview this series, and, you know, it seems like it's the fate of God that we will have to, we should get really weird. Like, let's analyze some shit that, like, is just very obscure and no one cares about. Let's just talk about Sean Corrali for 45 minutes or something. Yeah, so... Because, you know, we've done the Bruins top line 15 times. According to HockeyViz, we have a 38% chance of facing Tampa and a 34% chance of facing Boston. But, like, that will shift if if Tampa bad. wins one game and Boston loses one game. Those will be flipped, effectively. Um, yeah, no, it's just, I'm annoyed because, like, there is... I don't think there's genuinely anything new to say about Toronto-Boston. They're the same teams. Right? Like, yeah, the, the, pretty well. The bit parts have changed, but at their core, pretty similar. Um, the Leafs have, under Sheldon Keefe, become more so of what they were under Mike Babcock last year, right? They've become even more all-offense. Um I mean, the defensive numbers are, are good, but obviously there's still a lot of defensive flaws. The goaltending is now a little questionable with Freddie Anderson. And no, there is not a, start, a, a goalie controversy yet. Um, if it gets to—if we face Boston in Game 1 and Anderson loses, there will be a should Jack Campbell start movement. Yeah. I mean, there's enough time in, left in the year where if Jack Campbell keeps winning and Freddie Anderson keeps struggling— I, I will say it's non-zero that Jack Campbell would start such a game, but I also sort of think, and I mentioned this in an article, if we get to the point where that's happened, we've probably also missed the playoffs because it means that we lost a lot of games with our at-the-time starters. So it's it's a bit of a fine fine needle to the thread there. But yeah, I I mean, it's it's going to be gruesome. And Boston, you know, has Tuka Rask and uh, Yara Halak and all this sort of stuff. I'm just... Uh, man... <laughs> I'd like to be clear. It's not that I don't think we can beat them. We can. We might. I wouldn't favor us, but we got a shot. We had a shot last year. We had a shot the year before that. We made it to Game 7. That's evidence in and of itself that we had a chance. It's just so tiresome. I mean, the only thing is is that Nazem Kadri isn't around to get suspended this time, I guess. Um, I don't know if Alex Kerfoot is going to put the stick through some guy's mouth, but we'll see. Anyway. 
I, I apologize for like the nihilism that has seeped into this podcast, but in our defense, fuck Boston. I'm so tired of them. <laughs> yeah, it's just just super frustrating to have to play them again. And also, so I, I know this is why this this is one thing the NHL wants. They want to create kind of rivalries through their playoff system. And I mean, I suppose they have, although it, it we'd have we probably have to win one before we call it a rivalry. Um, yeah. But it gets it gets boring, right? I, I think playoff rivalries kind of happen organically, anyways, and it's they won't always necessarily be on division lines. They'll be on the lines of which team face like just any team that faces any other team is going to have a rivalry with them. And this creates more repeat matchups, which makes it more likely for those rivalries to, to, to flourish. But the downside is certainly that, well, it gets a little bit boring after a while when you're facing the same teams. Yeah, I think I think they've made it so that there are fewer rivalries. Because you'll grow to hate anyone. I remember that from our many playoff runs of my youth, which I probably didn't appreciate at the time. But, like, we hated the Devils and the Islanders. We had some ugly series against, like, the Carolina Hurricanes. Well, I mean, we had the recurring things against the Sens, and we were kind of to the Sens with Boston is becoming to the us. The Flyers as well. But, yeah, you know, lots of, uh, you know, bitter feelings and intense series. Now, the Leafs of that era were also uh, a little dirty. <laughs> I won't lie. Any team with Darcy Tucker on yeah. is a little bit uh, No, we, we were definitely the bad guys in a lot of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, for real. And, you know, being objective here, it's like, Whatever you think of Toronto right now, they're kind of, you know, we're not throwing a ton of dirty hits or anything like that. Back in that day, we definitely did. We, <laughs> we were really, really ugly. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I, I think the, the playoff format is dumb. I think it's repetitive and silly. But whatever, the NHL has decreed it. Our first priority is to get in. You know, I will be relieved to get in at all, but I have to admit, it's hard to gin up much enthusiasm to play the Bruins again. They're just so goddamn annoying. Yeah. It, it it's just frustrating to have to deal with all that all that shit again. I don't enjoy watching the Bruins and us what we're watching us play the Bruins. Frankly, mm-hmm. it's not fun. And you know, like they're a very effective hockey team. They're probably like they're a top three team in the world. Yeah, they're very good. You have to give credit words. Of they're, course, yeah, they're a great team. Yeah, and you know, yeah, and you know, and again, that top line. I still think it's the best line in hockey. I've been saying that for I don't know three, four, five hundred years. And it's still there. I mean, David Pasternak is actually still threatening the Rocket Richard in a hunt with Matthews and Ovechkin. <sighs> you know. Anyway, onward and upward, I guess. What can you do? Yeah. <laughs> All right, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, discuss? I think we, we, we want to talk about the Leafs loaded up top line of Matthews, Nylander, Marner. I actually don't have a lot to say about it. They they yeah. just didn't do that much, frankly. No. And you know what? If you left them long enough, I think they would get better. But I don't really feel inclined to do that on any kind of ongoing basis. I would rather have Nylander, Tavares, and Matthews Marner. Or flip the wingers. I don't care. But I would rather have two uh, very strong lines like that than try and overload our top line. Because I'm not convinced that there's, like, extra special value that comes from having that overloaded top line. Yeah. Like, I don't think it turns into the Boston line, for example. Yeah. Which is kind of like, you really want it to be so spectacular if you're loading up that that hard that almost no one can stand before it. You know, like, that line comes on, and it's a holy terror. I don't know that I see that, frankly. You know, to, to be totally honest with you, I'm not sure that those would be the, the three. Like, I would want Tavares on there if we were trying to make, like, a just a monster line. You know, it, it could work. It could be fine. I have no problem, you know, like, tossing it out in certain situations where you might think that it's necessary to load up a little bit. But I don't have any inclination to try it again. Yeah, I, and so I described the Tavares... Kerfoot, Hyman line. Right, if I describe the Leafs as like, I think in the Arizona game, uh, with this kind of setup, is they're a one-line team, and that one line hadn't showed up. And of course, that was the game where Tavares and Hyman, their line, uh, and Kerfoot, they got two goals. And some people would like kind of point it out. It's like, hey, no line, no team with John Tavares on a separate line is a truly a one-line team. It's like, 
I kind of, it's true, but I kind of roll my eyes. That's like, okay, you get, you get my point. They are one line with three mm-hmm. elite players and one line with a good, very good first line center and like, okay, wingers. Right? Yeah, like, they're it, choosing it imbalance some, is the point. Yeah, and in that game, like that Tavares line was great and they will be great because John Tavares is good and Zach Hyman's very good as well. But that's, that's not an elite top line, right? And the, like the Leafs as currently constructed mm-hmm. can create two elite top lines, like two of the 10 best lines in the world. Yeah. Right, so I, I would prefer that. Yeah, I, you know, like, I don't hate it. Like, I want to emphasize, and I can certainly see the logic for it. And you can say, well, it's only a couple of games. They're still feeling each other out. You have to let these things play out for a bit. And I think, yeah, sure, you know, try stuff if you really feel inclined. It's just, we've seen really, really good lines that seem to work that I don't feel super inclined to mess with right now. You know, mm-hmm. of all the things on this team that I want to adjust, those two forward pairings are not among them. So, yeah, I kind of very lukewarm on that sort of stuff. It's fine. I respect that Jeldon Keefe wanted to try it, but if he wants to stop trying it, I will not be sad. Yep, same. Like, Yeah, cool, cool that he tried it. Don't have any particular desire to see it again. Mm-hmm. All right, sweet. So we can probably um, get out of here then. Yeah, sweet. So you can uh, find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.